That's probably the best bit of the day. That was great, wasn't it? Real life stories. That's what we're really interested in in this series. Now, here's a really unusual real life story. In fact, it's so unusual, it's hard to believe it actually happened. You know, when Jesus came, there was a fantastic moment of excitement. Angels, stars, miracles, virgin birth. And then it all went quiet. Jesus went back to Nazareth with his family. His cousin John the Baptist disappeared off into the hillside and eventually when he grew up he he went into the um, local desert area called the Judean wilderness and no one really knew what he was up to and for 30 years nothing happened as far as anybody knew Jesus was there at the carpenter's bench John the so-called prophet of Jesus was out there in the wilderness no one even knew where he was half the time He dressed rather strangely. And then, suddenly, it all began to happen. And John appeared. I'm going to focus for a moment on John, because John's life tells us something really important for our series. John appeared, as if from nowhere, And he went down to the river, the one big river running through the country, the Jordan River that runs north to south on the eastern part of the country. And he kind of pitched his stand on the side of the river. And he started preaching to all the passers-by on the main road that goes north-south. Hundreds and thousands of people passed by. And for some reason he gathered their attention. He was authoritative, he was powerful, and he basically said to them, God's just about to do something great. Get ready. I want to just read what, what, what Luke describes John as doing, and then I want to draw a conclu- just, a, just an observation from this which relates to our theme. You may think this is, a, this is a bit of a surprise, but you'll see where I'm going in a moment. So come with me as we just look at this Amazing story in Luke 3. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country round the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. How about that for a message that uh, just sort of warms the heart and makes you feel good about yourself? 
I'm surprised they didn't just go home at that point. But they didn't. Because the Holy Spirit was moving. And they, it said, what should we do? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing flock is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, here's the interesting bit at the end. The local ruler was called Herod the Tetrarch. He ruled in that area. But notice what John did with him. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Okay, this is not what you call the prosperity gospel. This is very interesting. Because John was so practical. Do you notice how practical he was? If you've got extra clothes or a lot of extra food because you've got a lot of extra money, one way that you can show your orientation towards God is to start sharing it with other people rather than hoarding it. And if you're a tax collector... Don't take extra money off people, just take what the government asks you to take because the tax collectors in those days frequently took a lot of extra money. No one knew exactly how much they had to pay to the government, so they just demanded what they demanded. It was corrupt from start to finish. And soldiers, don't extort money. Soldiers in poor countries are underpaid and they take money off people. You, you follow that around the world, you'll see it all over the world today. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen police do it, soldiers do it, in countries where they're not well paid. They just go and they demand money. And he said, don't do it. And then concerning Herod the Tetrarch, well, this really was a big story. You see, Herod was married already. And he went to visit his brother, and he rather fancied his brother's wife. And he seduced her and said, come, be my wife. He divorced his first wife and married this lady called Herodias, which was totally against the Jewish law. And John said, you may be the king, but you're not allowed to do that. So it turns out that even at the very beginning of the Christian era, in the very first message of the very first prophet before Jesus came, Faith was practical. And faith involved justice and faith involved caring for the underdog. Do you get that feeling from John the Baptist? He's already, he said four different things in this message. And that's the very first message he gives. 
So that gives us a clue to the theme of today, which is concerning truth and justice and mercy. Uh, On the front line, how do we care for people in need? How do we speak up for people who are the underdog? How do we live our lives so that they're not just about ourselves and our own well-being? That's the thing we're going to be thinking about today. And John gives us a clue that this is going to be part of Christian discipleship. Let's move on. Let's move on to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Very famously, in verse 13, in the passage about salt and light, I'm sure you remember it, Jesus said, and I'm only going to read the first verse here because I want to concentrate on this concept of salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, here's an interesting thing. You are the salt of the earth. What on earth does that mean? When I was a young kid at Sunday school, I was taught that salt in the old days was good for preserving meat. Have you ever heard that one? And of course, it's good for flavour, which is why all processed food is filled with masses of salt. But Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And that word earth means soil, land, ground, literal earth. And he said to his disciples, you are like salt on the earth. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, fortunately, Jesus explains himself. And this is going to really help us. And if you've never seen this before, this is an insight I found absolutely fascinating. In Luke 14, verse 34 and 35, Jesus explains much more fully the purpose of salt. Luke 14, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Okay. Now, can you come with me in a little uh, imaginary journey to first century Palestine? And I want you to imagine we are, I am representing a household in first century Palestine. And every household had Almost every household had two things outside the house. Land, some land, which needed to be used for growing crops, vegetables, for animal husbandry. And at the far end of the land, right at the end of your plot or your property, was what modern people call a long drop. Anyone not know what a long drop is? If you're young, you might never have heard of it. The toilet. A big hole dug in the ground with probably just a little wooden shed around it. By the way, 2.5 billion billion people in the world today don't have their own toilet in their house. It's a modern issue. But there we have at the end of the plot the toilet, or in the words of Jesus, the manure heap. Ah, I've got land, I've got the toilet, and what else have I got? 
salt. This is a modern version, ladies and gentlemen. But in Israel, the Jordan River flows into a sea called the Dead Sea, which had no exit, and the water evaporated. And it became very, very salty, and the whole sea was completely salty. And the salt deposits would be seen on the side of the lake, and you can still see them today. Salt deposits were all over the country. You could almost pick them up off the ground. So salt to the first century Jew was an everyday commodity which they could get hold of. You are the salt of the earth. Is the salt any good for the soil? And is the salt any good for the manure heap? Let's have a little bit of a think about this. Before fertilizers came along, in most ancient societies, up until the modern age, small quantities of salt were used as fertilizers because of the minerals within them. You are the salt of the earth. Let's fertilize, excuse me, stewards, let's fertilize our crops on our land with the salt that we can get in our country. Very carefully used, not in large quantities, otherwise it goes in the opposite direction. Salt as a fertilizer. During World War II, when Britain could not import fertilizers or make sufficient fertilizers, the government issued advice to farmers about the use of salt in fertilizing the soil. Recovering an ancient way of fertilization. You are the salt of the earth. You can fertilize the good things that are growing on the earth. And if I'm the householder in my ancient house, once a week probably, I shall go down to the toilet, the manure heap, the long drop, and I'll be pouring salt over here. What am I doing? Disinfecting it. Because of the antibacterial properties of salt and the disinfectant power of salt will reduce the capacity of negative bacteria in the long drop or animal manure, same issue, which they would have the same issue with. And so I pour some salt. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And if you don't keep your quality, you'll be no good for fertilizing good things. And you'll be no good for disinfecting dangerous things. You are the salt of the earth. Yes, you are, by the way. How do we do this? Especially when we are applying this to encouraging truth and justice and mercy in our society. 
How do we encourage the good things and how do we disinfect the bad things that are in society? Because we're commanded to do both, to fertilise and to disinfect. I propose to you three ways. At the simplest but very powerful level, taking a verse from 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, which I'm going to read, we have, as Christians, a special mandate to encourage the weak and vulnerable. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, but encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Notice notice that. Encourage the disheartened and help the weak. We'll discuss how we do that in just a moment. And sometimes we need to speak up on behalf of people who are in need. They need somebody to speak for themselves. Galatians 2.10 says, the apostles talking to each other about their mandate, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. This is remembering in action, but also speaking for them. And then finally, and this is, some, this is the really challenging thing. And this is what John the Baptist did in the passage we looked at. Sometimes it gets even stronger than that. Sometimes the church needs to challenge things that are fundamentally wrong in their society. James did this in chapter 5 in a passage that people very rarely preach on. And I can see why. This is when he heard that Christians who had gone to other countries were being given a really hard time when they were trying to find a job on farms. He got lots of reports to this effect. And he makes this statement in, John, uh, in James 5. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Sometimes the Christian voice is one of direct challenge to something that is wrong. So how does this all work out? That's the theory. Let's think about a few examples in practice. A few years ago, I went to a city to speak, and I heard this story. The Salvation Army one day had received a message from a young lady who was in distress, and she wanted them to help help her. So she came to the Salvation Army and they said, uh, you know, what's been going on in your life? And she said, well, I've been involved in prostitution, high-end prostitution, and I want to break free of it. I want to become a Christian. I want to start a new life. And so she did. And then she said to the Salvation Army, she said, the problem that I've got is that in the place where I used to work, I saw human sex trafficking taking place. And I've got knowledge and information about sex trafficking in our city. What should I do? 
So the Salvation Army very wisely moved from just helping her. They said, leave this with us. They did something very important. This is speaking up on behalf of the needy. They went to the police. And they said to the police, we've got evidence here in our city about some sophisticated human trafficking, sex human trafficking. So the police carried out a number of raids and there was a huge prosecution over a long period of time in that city and several trafficking rings were broken, their perpetrators were imprisoned and the whole situation in the city changed. Now that didn't change just because that girl gave that information. That changed because the church decided we're going to speak up for the people who are being abused in this situation. And then an organization was born out of that initiative. Let's think of another example. Think of the work of food banks. We're very involved in food bank here, as you know. We have been for many years. Food bank operates at a number of different levels. First of all, it's an incredible encouragement to people to be spoken spoken to graciously, to be given the gifts of food, and to be encouraged. We need to encourage people who are having a hard time. But secondly, in the context of something like food bank, we can do something more. We can actually speak up on behalf of people who are suffering in society. In the Shropshire Star last week was an article, I have a copy of it here, that uh, Karen Williams uh, gave an interview to the Shropshire Star about uh, child poverty and families in poverty as an increasing trend. This is speaking up on behalf of people who are in need. And Christians can do that at all sorts of different levels. In the organization that I work with in Jubilee Plus, one of my colleagues who's in the booklet, Natalie Williams, through very careful uh, use of opportunities we had, has formed, uh, has taken us now has the opportunity to meet regularly with the uh, minister in charge of the Department of Work and Pensions. Her name is Amber Rudd. They meet one-to-one with advisors um, and she represents Jubilee Plus and she represents the work of churches working with people in poor directly to the government, also to the civil servants. Now this is a great opportunity and on a meeting that she recently had, she prepared This document, this piece of paper was put on the table of the minister in government with four proposals about how to distribute and handle benefits better. That document was drafted by our team, was presented to the minister over the table in hard copy, not just an email. And two weeks ago, we heard from the department that the third out of our four proposals was going to be adopted. It was in the news. 
Now, Christians in many situations have opportunities, more than we realize, to influence people when things aren't quite right. Let me now take a very personal example. Very personal to me. This isn't anything to do with my work. This is to do with my family. So my wife Jane suffers from ME, as many of you know, which hinders her being fully involved in the church because of lack of energy. So what's my responsibility? First of all, it's that first thing, encourage. All of us, every single person here, we can be encouragers of people who are struggling. Every single person can do that. I want you to take home that thought, if nothing else, from today. So one of the main things I need to do for her is to encourage her. Support her and encourage her on a daily basis. But then something interesting happened where I had to do something more dramatic. Because she's involved, as so many thousands of people are, in the benefit system. She had a medical uh, examination and test for, for her benefits halfway through the process. And as a result, I was present at this particular, on this particular occasion. As a result of this, we received a letter saying all the benefits have been taken away completely. Suddenly. Right. Now, encouragement isn't always enough. Something had to be done. I was at that medical examination and I knew that the report did not represent the reality. So, I, was, I decided to take up the case. And it ended up with me going to a tribunal, placing a judge, a medical officer, with a clerk in attendance, four of us in the room, and being cross-examined about this particular situation. I did a lot of work and research and I advocated and the outcome was that they reversed their decision and reinstated all the benefits. But it made me think. It was a very personal issue to me and to us, as you can imagine. But I'll tell you what I learnt in that extremely painful situation. I learnt more than ever before that one thing Christians can do is to speak up for people who don't really know how to articulate their needs and they don't know how to get the help they need. Whether it's from their doctor or from their family or from their neighbour or from a government department or from the school where their children are at. Maybe they're elderly. Do you know anyone like that? As soon as I say it, you'll begin to think of people. And one of the things that the Lord can give us the grace to do is to encourage people who are struggling in life. Maybe they've got mental health problems that nobody can see, but you know perfectly well what those mental health issues are. Maybe you have neighbours who are very elderly and they're getting frailer and frailer and no one's really noticing because the family lives so far away, but you see things that are happening that they don't see because they never come and visit. And it turns out that we're the salt of the earth. We have to do something within our capabilities to help people. 
Let me give you another very different example. I wonder whether you've noticed the fact that the media is increasingly saying that Christians around the world are facing increasing persecution. And our own foreign secretary commissioned a report in his department which reported recently to say that Christians' vulnerability to persecution in the world is at an all-time high in living memory and it goes across all sorts of different parts of the world. How does that make you feel? Can we do anything? I ask myself this question, can I do anything about this? Yes, you can support agencies working there, that's good. Yes, you can pray, that's good. But do you know what I felt I should do? I felt I should make this point regularly to our MP face to face. And so that's what I do. Every year, at least once a year, I sit in his office and one theme I'll always talk to him about is the persecution of Christians and say, what's your government's view on this, that or the other aspect of it? And he said to me one day, you always come and talk to me about other people rather than yourself. And I think, well, actually, that's what being the salt of the earth is about. What can we do? What can you do to help people? What's your front line? Now, in a minute, at the end of this service, I just sensed it was quite important, even though this is a very challenging theme, to give an opportunity for people to respond because some of you are feeling stirred. And what I want to stir is that sense that we're stirred out of the apathy that our culture can allow us to fall into because things tick over in life and a lot of people's lives are just ticking over and Christians' lives can just tick over and you've got plenty of things to get on with in your own life and things are relatively comfortable for us compared with other people very often and that's a dangerous moment in the life of a Christian because that's when we need to be on the front foot and not fall into a sense of slumber but be ready to use the opportunity and time we have to be salt and light, to speak for others in a relevant way. So at the end of this talk, which will be very shortly, I'll be inviting you, if you want to respond, to come and stand here. I'm going to pray for you, confident that for some of you, you're going to get on the front line in a fresh way. And how's that going to be? Well, let me tell you what happened to me last Sunday. I listened to Rich's excellent talk, which I thought was really helpful. That very day, I ended up in the evening at the bar of the sports club that I attend. There's a Sunday evening social, which I sometimes attend. A friend of mine got talking to me right by the bar, and for about he started telling me some very difficult things that I already knew about in his family and some certain things that were going to happen. And I said to him, as I've said to him several times before, I said, look, you know I'm a Christian. You know I believe in the living God. I'm praying for you. And we're going to communicate on a particular day when a certain event happens. And then I just encouraged him. There's no price on encouragement. It's a wonderful thing for people who are struggling. If someone says, look, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I'm concerned for you. I don't know the answer, but I haven't forgotten your need. What's your front line? What is it in your... Who is there in your neighbourhood? You just have that feeling you need to help. Who is there amongst your family 
and your friends who just needs that little bit of intervention. Many years ago, I was helping a very elderly man who was quite sick with some kind of an infection. And he said to me, when I visited him, he said, I think I'm going to die. I, I, I feel my body's just fading away. This infe- I don't know what I've got. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just feel so lethargic. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go anywhere. I just feel the end's come. I feel really, really depressed. And I went out of the house and I thought, what should I do? Because I'd said to him, what about talking to the doctors? Oh, I can't be bothered with that. So I prayed. And I felt the Lord gave me an idea. I wrote to his doctor. I knew who the doctor was. I said, look, you can't talk to me. But I'm going to talk to you. And I'm asking you, please pay an unannounced home visit on this patient. Then I left it at that. I never heard anything back from the doctor. But I went to visit this man a little bit later on. And he said to me, you never guess what? (laughs) The doctor came the other day and prescribed me, showed me some kind of pill. I don't know what it was. I'm feeling ever so much better. He was a very old man, but he lived for another period of time. And I genuinely, genuinely think he wouldn't have lived that time if somebody hadn't done something. And it wasn't much. Because I can't go and talk to her, to to his doctor. I'm not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to talk to me. But I wrote a letter. And they never, ever communicated with me ever about it. They just read it and thought, they just thought, okay, we'll do it. I want to encourage you, you can do things like that. For your family, for your friends, people you know, people in your workplace. Is your front line the gossip in your workplace? This is one of the toughest things of all. But standing up for the integrity of colleagues at work when everyone else is running them down, just not joining in, that's a sign of Christian discipleship. That's a bit of salt on the disinfectant. That's a disinfectant on the, on the negative in society. What about that child at the school your parents go to who just seem, uh, your children go to and you're the parents but you don't think someone else is looking after that child? Maybe your front line is one of the BCP ministries that you're working in. It's fantastic things that are going on. I don't know what your front line is. But I'm inviting you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. Can we have the band back? And let's stand. Because this isn't for superstars. This is for ordinary people. And on our front line, we can encourage Sometimes we can speak up for people. <coughs> we can do all sorts of creative things and if we ask the Holy Spirit, it's incredible what, what can happen. And we can get in the habit of not just saying, oh, that's not my problem. I'll leave that to someone else. I'm too busy. 
I'm very tempted to that. The Holy Spirit constantly draws my attention to things and says, well, maybe you can do this. Maybe you can link them up with someone else. So in a, se- in a moment, we're going to sing a beautiful song. Let's just put the first words up, Tom, on the screen. Um, and this song is a, is a genuine response to this particular talk. Let's just have, if we could have the, uh, the, the other words there. I think we've probably got the wrong one. Anyway, it'll sort itself out. But while we're sorting that out, let's pray. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the early church. We thank you for all those things we learn in the Bible. But Lord, we're just more interested now to, to, to ask you the question, what do we do today? What's your calling on our lives? And so, Father, help us. Thank you for Lorian's amazing story. Thank you for all the other testimonies we've heard. Different people, different situations, different things we can do on the front line. Father, help us to get on that front line today. So this song says, I'm laying down my life. I'm giving up control. I'm never looking back. I surrender all. I'm living for your glory on the earth. And one way of doing that is by engaging with those people who have particular needs. So just before we sing, even before we sing, I just feel I need to make this invitation. It might just be you encouraging your neighbours. I'm not talking about big issues. But if you feel you want to be on the front line in this aspect, in this way, then can I invite you right now, however young or old you are, whatever your life situation is, make any difference whatsoever. Just come and stand here. Let's do that now. The people God's calling. And we'll sing together as, we, as a few people are standing. Just taking a step forward. Thank you, Lord. You call us to be the salt of the earth. Thank you, Lord.